Welcome to Surf and Turf, a seafood justice podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Ferguson. My guest this week is a voice that you've heard before, Will Senot, investigative reporter at the New Bedford Light and ProPublica. Will shares with me his shocking reporting on not only privatization, but what's known as financialization, which in this case is private equity ownership of fishing rights in New Bedford. Will talks about the impact of financialization on fishing communities and on fishermen's livelihoods. Before we dive in on your amazing reporting, I like to remember that seafood is deeply personal for so many of us. And is there a seafood dish that evokes a lot of memories for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, memories is one thing. Appetite's another. I remember growing up, my mom uh, would cook all different types of fish. You know, we grew up in, in New England, so it was fairly common. But the dish, you know, just <laughs> to recommend, I mean, my personal favorite dish is just simple uh, pan-fried scallops with butter, a little bit of garlic, salt and pepper. Um, something, you know, so simple, I can't even mess it up. So that's why it's my favorite. <laughs> that's one of my favorites, too. And I'm so glad you didn't put bacon in there because it just makes me so <laughs> no, sad when no people bacon. lose the flavor with bacon. <laughs> I agree. Just a little bit of, you know, butter, lemon, salt, pepper, garlic, and uh, yeah scallops let it let it stand for itself perfect so when the catch your program was implemented in the new england groundfish fishery it created winners and losers and one of those winners was carlos rafael who is known in the local press as the cod father so can you tell us how did rafael go about accumulating wealth and power within this system sure so carlos rafael is an incredibly interesting figure you know, especially here in new bedford he has a had an incredibly large presence in the fishing industry. He's an interesting story because he's a first-generation immigrant from the Azores, you know, really, in a way, embodies, you know, the American dream. Came here to New Bedford, um, you know, started working in a fish processing plant, bought one boat, eventually bought 40 boats, and had the biggest ground fishing fleet in all of New England. Um, the term codfather is, you know, some somewhat of a media creation, you know, to uh, encapsulate this, this kind of outsized character. Um, and he was really a dominant force in the New England groundfish and scallop industry before catch shares. Um, you know, to, to, to many, you know, it, you can see him as either, uh, you know, sort of Robin Hood type figure or a, um, you know, a crook. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people have mixed opinions on him. A lot of people who worked for him were very you know, fond of him. A lot of his competitors were not. And he, you know, it's fair to say that he really grew in influence, you know, as a result of, of, of catch shares. I mean, he, he at first was against the system, you know, he understood it. And, you know, we, we have this backed up in the story um, that it would result in, you know, one company being left standing. And, uh, you know, the result of switching to catch shares is that uh, he was granted the, the single largest allocation of groundfish permits and was able to expand, you know, as the total allowable catch shrank um, his, you know, uh, fishermen with small allocations weren't able to survive their businesses. And, uh, he was the one people really turned to, 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 you know, buy up a lot of, uh, uh, the groundfish permits. Yeah. He's such an interesting figure. Mm -hmm. I really recommend people read your article just for some of his outlandish quotes that like we can't put on the radio. <laughs> Unprintable. Yeah. <laughs> So when the Codfather was finally taken down, he was forced to sell his boats and permits. And who bought them? So, um, you're right. He was forced to sell his fleet, uh, which is, you know, contentious on its own because, you know, the, the courts proved a fraud was really a, a, a way that he expanded his empire. Um, 
you know, and people were against the idea that he was able to profit on the sale of this company that was built on corruption. Um, but when he did sell, it was in 2020, and he sold to Blue Harvest Fisheries, which you know was just starting at the time that Blue Har- that uh, Carlos Rafael was arrested in in 2015. They they, they began acquiring vessels, um, and in 2020 they bought 12 vessels and 27 permits that belonged to Carlos Rafael. Uh, he you know he so the way he went down it was a sting. You know the IRS um, posed as Russian mobsters. You know full on with suits and. Mercedes and Rolex watches and, you know, went up, approached him at the docks and he flipped open his whole books and showed them, you know, the fraud behind the operation. And based on, you know, the, the fraudulent ways he was able to sell and, and move fish, he valued his company at $125 million, but he sold, um, you know, that portion of the fleet, a large portion to Blue Harvest for $25 million. Wow. And tell us more about Blue Harvest. Is it accurate to say that it's the largest fishing company on the East Coast? Uh, well, so, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know each fishery is incredibly different. They're certainly the biggest ground fish company. Um, there's no, they have the largest permit holdings in the ground fish industry. Um, they had really significant holdings in the scallop industry, you know, 15 vessels, which is, you know, right under the 17 vessel cap until very recently they started selling off their, their scallop fleet. Um, but sure, when it comes to ground fish, which is the kind of fabled New England fishery, um, they are the largest. And your story uncovered that Blue Harvest is, I mean, I don't even know if it's fair to say it's owned by private equity. It almost is a branch of a private equity firm. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So the the, the company that's backing these acquisitions, um, it's a it's a private equity firm in New York City called Bregal Partners. Um, and, you know, they're uh, somewhat a small uh, investment firm, you know, by private equity. When you look at BlackRock or um, the Carlyle Group, these other massive, you know, giants of the private equity world. But what makes them interesting is that Bregal is a subsidiary of a, a holding company. It's called Kofra Holdings. It's based in Switzerland, and it's a family foundation, which means it's owned uh, only by uh, the, this family in the Netherlands, one of the wealthiest families in the Netherlands called the Brennickmeyer family. And can you just tell us what exactly is private equity? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so Private equity, I mean, it's been around for a long time. They really got their start in, you know, I mean, came into this prominent role in the 80s. Um, and the, the mission of private equity is to look at industries that are inefficient, reduce the inefficiencies and maximize profits, you know, essentially make businesses more profitable. And it sounds pretty benign when you look at it that way. But I mean, really, when you when you look at the fishing or any industry, whether whether it's, you know, shoes or clothes or the fishing industry, um, that is about reducing labor costs. So you really do see, um, you know, uh, it's very tied in with this history of uh, exporting labor overseas to, you know, underdeveloped countries or, you know, in domestic, you know, you can't outsource the fishing industry. And, um, you know, the way they go about uh, minimizing those inefficiencies is, uh, you know, reducing labor costs. So tell us about the impact that that has on fishermen. Um, I mean, just in the most direct way, it has a direct um, impact on their their paycheck. Um, so what we saw, I mean, this investigation, what I'm um, just just to back up. I mean, what we wanted to look at here, New Bedford, you know, is the most profitable fishing port in the United States. It brings in you know 390 million pounds of seafood seafood across the port each year. Um, the numbers they they fluctuate quite a bit depending on how you look at them, whether it's the dockside price or the you know retail price. Um, a port analysis showed that the, 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 the port generates $11 billion each year uh, in seafood. 
so that's everything from you know uh, the you know the vessels, the the um, shops that surround it, the gear shops, everything down to the fish, and of course that's the, the biggest piece of the pie. So when we went went to the story, what we wanted to look at is you know what those numbers mean for the local economy. I mean, New Bedford is one of the most impoverished cities in Massachusetts. It's you know been um, had twice the the average you know poverty rate of the state of Massachusetts for the last. 10 years and that hasn't changed you know despite consumer prices for fish increasing despite the the industry concentrating here more jobs being here and we wanted to really study that economic dissonance and understand what it meant um, for the local community and what we found is that with this you know private equity takeover of the fishing industry um, you know the labor costs the you know the people of the industry they are not rising with the the tide so to speak so what we did is we, we interviewed um, a crew of fishermen who worked for Blue Harvest Fisheries. They were willing enough to allow us um, to come onto their boat to speak with them for you know, multiple, I mean, ab about a dozen interviews went on there. And eventually we built this trust where they showed us their, um, you know, the, their pay stubs. They call them settlement sheets in the fishing industry, which really breaks down, you know, the, 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 the price that they get at the end, you know, from, you know, what the... Um, the company is charging for you know, the fish they buy from their own boats um, down to what they get at the end of the day. And what we found is that, you know, it's a ground fish, so a lot of different species, but for a, a species like haddock, for example, um, you know, this crew would go out and catch 50,000 pounds of you know, haddock, redfish, pollock. And uh, well, you know, that the public auction, um, you know, the haddock would go for something like 228 per pound. We found that after, uh, the company had pushed these costs of fuel, of leasing permits, of um, you know just routine maintenance. Uh, they received the captain received about fourteen cents a pound, and the crew about seven. So, I mean, there's this old adage in you know labor reporting, you know, um, boss makes a dollar, I make a dime, right? But you know, in this situation here, you know, it's two dollars twenty eight cents versus about seven cents is the breakdown. One thing that's really interesting to me about this dynamic, and this is happening in in many fisheries where catch shares have been implemented, is that fishermen went from being owner operators to, in many cases, being leasers of permits. Can you tell us a little bit about, in your investigation, the impact that this is having, not just maybe on an individual fisherman or a crew member, but on the waterfront? Yeah, I mean, it's it, what it's done is really separate the industry into a class of owners and workers. You know, I mean, the fishing industry, um, you know, the kind of nostalgic idea, romantic idea we have of it is, you know, people out there on the water working for themselves, a kind of fiercely independent New England breed. Um, but yeah, this 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 um, regulation, you know, and of course there are uh, a way to understand it as you know, um, a, a environmental push to conserve these species, which is of course important, but you know, these, these permits have become so expensive, they're just unattainable for any fisherman based on the rate they're being paid. You know, there's a quote from this, another fisherman, um, Joe Drago, he's a scalloper. And what he said is that, you know, the, the kind of outcome of the progression of this, this industry of, you know, permits um, be costing so much is that um, they've made it uh, impossible to anything but work for them. Meaning it's a, you know, this separation between owner and worker um, has been built in in perpetuity. And they are able to do that just because they set the price for permits. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an open market. It's like real estate or anything like that, um, where it's a finite uh, resource. You know, it's, these permits are based, they're, they're percentages, right? So you have a rights to catch 
rights to these fish before you even dip your net into the ocean. And, um, you know, the investment world is really interested in these kind of uh, assets that, you know, hold value in perpetuity. You know, you don't have to keep up a boat. You don't have to go out there and catch the fish. The permit is an asset in itself. And, you know, if you look at Bergal Partners, the private equity firm that, you know, is behind Blue Harvest Fisheries, it says right on their their website that they're interested in, quote, fishing rights. And, you know, they're investors that, you know, I'm fairly certain that no one down in the New York office has, you know, um, gone out with a, a, a boat and a net to catch fish. But they're interested in these assets because, you know, this is a percentage of the total fish that we're allowed to catch each year. You know, it's... um. It's really kind of seductive for the investment world. I mean, you know, there's a lot of issues environmentally, globally with the oceans. But I mean, what these permits mean is that, you know, until the end of time, uh, if you own 1% of the haddock species, you'll have the rights to every, you know, three-eyed neon green haddock in the ocean. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. Mm -hmm. So how do these companies avoid antitrust laws? So antitrust laws in the fishing industry are pretty complicated because uh, we, we look at the market domestically, but it is a global industry. So that's kind of the justification for why the, count, the, the councils you know, here in New England or in other parts of the, the country um, are, are, are so lax. Uh, in, in New England, though, it is especially lax. That is, uh, you know, just the, the, the foremost rule is that uh, no comp- when it comes to ground fish, no company can own more than 15.5% of the, you know, aggregate permits for all the ground fish species. Um, you know, so that means they can, you know, one way around this rule is they can own, you know, 30% of the Atlantic cod or 20% of the Atlantic haddock, which is above the antitrust cap, but it balances out if they own, you know, some 2% of a flounder that, you know, that they might not go after. Um, so that's one way around it. And it is kind of a weakness in, in the regulatory system. Um, the other weakness is the 15.5% in itself, which many fishermen, you know, on Cape Cod, even in New Bedford, you know, I've spoken to fishermen who get by on owning one third of 1% of a haddock species, you know, and that's um, not a lot, but it's, you know, for an individual fisherman, it's plenty. Um, and they see that, you know, 15.5%, you know, essentially meaning seven companies can own the entire fishing industry is incredibly high. Um, the third way you know, that these antitrust rules are incredibly weak is this system known as leasing, which is, um, you know, much like real estate, uh, the person who owns a fishing permit or the quota can lease that quota to a fisherman who either wants to go catch that fish or doesn't have enough of their own quota to um, to, to go fishing, you know, because if you go off ground fishing, you might catch a bundle of different species. And um, if you don't have quota for a species you didn't intend to catch, you need to lease that quota from whoever owns it. And um, it's a complicated system in itself. Um, you know, it's produced this whole kind of class of what they call armchair fishermen, which is, you know, people who don't fish, but kind of, you know, and maybe even former fishermen, but have found it a lot easier to just kind of cruise on their ownership of, you know, passively. They're, they're leasing out their fishing permits. But for a company like Blue Harvest, um, it's really allowed them to, uh, you know, control a greater uh, portion of the market. Um, we talked to some management at Blue Harvest Fisheries who didn't want to be named in the story, but, you know, the, the manage- the people there who work there locally are New Bedford people. You know, they care about their workers, the, the people in the fishing industry. It's very different than, you know, the, the Wall Street folks there. Um, 
and yeah, we talked to them and they, they said, you know, um, we're trying to catch as much fish as possible. Beginning of the year, we'll lease a big bucket of fish. Um, you know, if we're short on anything, we'll buy it for that year. And, um, when you, when you put that, you know, to other, you know, fishing groups, say, uh, sectors up in Maine or Rhode Island, um, what they say is that this, um, you know, their desire to really control the market has raised the prices for leasing so that, um, you know, they're, it's a industry of or a market of the highest bidder and, you know, a fisherman trying to lease quota, uh, certainly is no match for, you know, a company backed by Wall Street. Yeah, it's fascinating because what you've just um, explained really demonstrates that this is not a system that was designed for one fisherman, one boat, right, for like a, for a plurality of boats. It was really a system designed for consolidation that if, if one company is able to hone far more permits than one boat could possibly catch, right? It It's like built into the logic of the system that seven companies would accumulate the the rights to fish. Yeah, I mean, the progression over time has edged towards that direction. Um, and, you know, you look at the, uh, the kind of genesis of this catch shares program, which was adopted for ground fish in 2010. Um, you know, many fishermen understood that. I mean, that's why there was so much resistance to it at the time. Um, and what it really is, is, you know, an alignment of, you know, big business, you know, uh, and conservationism. Um, and essentially what it was is the council, which, you know, is in charge of regulating the fishing industry, um, you know, almost uh, surrendering, you know, uh, this one boat, one, you know, fisherman, you know, open access idea to, you know, sustainability which is of course incredibly important um but this model you know when you look at who put it forward you know the um the environmental defense fund was a big advocate for this program um and they're backed largely by uh you know the walton family foundation or walmart and you know which is a, a major distributor of seafood in the united states um and you know big business means you know lower consumer prices for fish at least on paper and um yes yeah, so when you you know think of this idea it's um it's i mean it's almost as if the councils have in a way given up on you know like sustaining or assisting small business um and prioritized only sustainability when the reality is that you know good government should be a balance of both well and it's so interesting too because if the entire uh, like theoretical grounding for the catch share system in the first place is that if you own the resource, you will care more about it and work harder to sustain it in the long term. Mm-hmm. Well, what we have instead of local fishermen who presumably do care about the resource and want <laughs> generations of people in New Bedford to be able to fish it, we have private equity firms who, as you said, are saying we're trying to catch as many fish as possible. Right. And I should say as many fish as possible within the total allowable catch, the sustainable limit that the government sets, which you know, by every metric does seem, um, you know, reasonable. It's not like they're trying to, you know, this blue harvest is trying to rob every fish out of the ocean. They're just trying to corner as much of the market as they're allowed to do under the sustainable yield metrics, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, Um, of course. I just think it's interesting that the incentives, right, don't align in the way that the system supposed. Yeah. And, you know, this balance of, you know, big business and conservationism and even the unity of, of the two, um, you know, this family, the Brennickmeyer family really does embody that, you know, kind of as Carlos Raphael embodied the 
greedy, small scale criminal, you know, enterprise that, you know, dominated the fishing industry in the, in the previous generation up till 2016 or so. Um, the Brennickmeyers, so they're interesting. Their, their, their main industry is clothing. Um, they have sweatshops all across, um, you know, South Bangladesh, China, and, you know, I've spoken to labor activists, you know, who, you know, try to fight for better wages in that region for garment workers. And of course they're familiar with, with, um, you know, the Brennickmeyers, their, their clothing company, CNA. And I was really struck because I asked them, um, what they thought of the company and they were, they had, a, um, kind of a complex idea, which is that, you know, on one hand, CNA is really dedicated to sustainability, you know, whether that's in uh, cotton, um, you know, they use for their clothes or timber that they use. Um, also, it's, you know, a, a product that's also used in clothes, strangely enough. Um, they're really dedicated to, you know, sustainably harvesting resources. However, when you look at, um, you know, the sweatshops <laughs> where those clothes are made, um, you know, in Bangladesh, where, you know, wages are amongst the lowest in the world, or the China, um, or sorry, their, their cotton um, production, which, you know, a part of comes from China, and the company has been accused of sourcing from um, Uyghur slaves. Um, and that's an accusation that has been proven, but there is this kind of through line of sustainability and just the lowest wage labor. Yeah, it's, it's a very narrow definition of sustainability that's advantageous to big business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that fishermen were organizing to resist catch shares from very early on. What sorts of activities are fishermen organizing now? Um, so it's interesting. I was actually just down in uh, D.C. last week with a group of, of fishermen. They call it the Catch Shares Reform Coalition. And it's kind of this loose-knit group of fishermen from all across the country. I mean, you had um, you know, some fishermen from Cape Cod or the South Shore of Massachusetts, you know, ground fishermen. Um, you had uh, squid fishermen from Rhode Island. You had, um, you know, uh, red snapper fishermen from the Gulf or um, indigenous kind of more um, sustenance, you know, like salmon fishermen, uh, indigenous folks from Alaska and uh, commercial folks from Alaska too, small scale. Um, and they went down to D.C. to really plead with Congress to uh, a, a bunch of things, but really based around reforming the catch shares regulatory system so that it benefits local port economies and not, you know, massive multinational companies. Um, and that's things like reining in the antitrust limit for species like groundfish or red snapper, which where it's incredibly high, um, you know, creating transparency in the ownership of permits. I mean, you know, understanding that this, um, the Brennickmeyer family, that, you know, that owns Blue Harvest Fisheries, it's easy to, to go, you know, explain up that ladder, but it was incredibly difficult to determine, you know, who owned these permits at the end of the day required, you know, public record requests and real negotiations with NOAA to make it more transparent. That was just for one company, um, which we, we, we dug in on. So right. Reining in antitrust limits, making permit ownership more transparent. Also the permit leasing market more transparent because right now um, it's all fully anonymous and completely shielded from government oversight. I mean, we were told um, government is not allowed to get involved in what happens in the, le the leasing market you know, from no people at NOAA Fisheries. And the third, um, and this is kind of a stretch, but to make some sort of requirements that if you, you know, own permits, you have to fish them yourselves, you know, kind of close the door on the speculative um, investment of fishing permits. You know, they're saying these aren't stocks on Wall Street. This is, you know, our livelihoods, and we don't want these traded <laughs> on this um, open market. If you're a fisherman, um, if you own permits, you should be a fisherman, and you should be catching the fish that you have the rights to catch yourself. 
What, if anything, can our listeners do to engage in this issue? That's a good question. Um, you know, part of the issue is that it's um, something that takes place, you know, somewhat far away. I mean, fishing, you know, you don't often see it. Our interaction comes really at the ports and many of these small ports, you know, whether it's on the Cape or up in Maine, um, have really been drained of their industries, you know, and that's all been concentrated here where I live as a reporter in New Bedford. Um, uh, you know, I'd say, of, of, of course, you know, the main thing to do is to just kind of be conscious when you're buying seafood. I mean, when you go to a restaurant, ask about where it's from and don't let them off the hook when they say that, you know, the salmon that they're serving is from the Gulf of Maine. You know, I mean, really, really question them on, you know, um, what region it's from, uh, if it's, you know, imported or, or domestically caught, um, maybe even the company um, that they, they source from and try to, you know, push the market, you know, restaurants, to be more transparent um, about their sourcing. I think that's great insight, Will. I've often heard people say, you know, ask where your fish is from, but I've, I've never been recommended, nor have I ever thought to ask what company are you buying it from? Yeah. And yeah, through the lens of accumulation and consolidation, it seems like a more important question than ever. Agreed. A huge thank you to Will for coming on the show and for all of his in-depth reporting on fishing in New Bedford. If you missed it, go back to season one and listen to our interview on seafood processing worker justice. He is really doing excellent reporting across the board, and I've linked to all of it in the show notes. You can also follow me at CEFerguson1 on Twitter, and you can follow the show on Instagram at Surf and Turf Podcast. You can also find every episode for free at www.surfandturfpodcast.com. As always, we want to thank our supporters at the University of Maine and funding from NOAA Fisheries. <laughs>